Let's pray. Father, we um, are here um, right now to ascribe to you all the glory and honor and praise that are due to you. God, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And God, I pray that um, tonight, today, God, that uh, you would be honored and glorified by my words, um, Lord, by the attentive, attentiveness of our hearts to your word. And God, I just pray that you would uh, change us and transform us um, for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good to be with you, church family, as we continue in the wonderful book of James. And today we are in uh, James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, as Heidi read. And uh, thank you, worship team. That was edifying to my soul. I titled the sermon, Judging Your Neighbor. A couple of weeks ago in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we learned about two types of wisdom. A wisdom that is, un, that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and it's governed by bitter jealousy and selfish, and selfish ambition. It's a wisdom that, that, uh, that is always looking through the lens of me, myself, and I. And then James contrasted this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom with wisdom from above that is first pure, and then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and sincere. And then James told us that when we avail ourselves of this heavenly wisdom from the Spirit of God, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace or those who are peacemakers. He also told us that we are to show our wise works in meekness or humility. And in last week and then this week and next week as well, there's going to be this theme of humble living going through the text. I've been soaking in this book for quite a while, for several months. And God has been deepening my faith and trust in Him. And He's been purifying my hope. While at the same time, He has been exposing uh, my fleshly desires. And it's been in this sanctification process over the last few weeks where he's been exposing my fleshly desires, that it's been actually been slow and it's been painful, mainly because I have been more concerned about the sin of others than my own sin. I don't know if you can relate with that at all, but I see uh, my own sin so much clearer, especially in the last month or so, but I'm prone to that anyways. I see my own sin um, clearer. Excuse me, I see other people's sin clearer than I see my own sin. Recently, I observed three men saying things that I, per I perceived as, as potentially divisive for the body of Christ and or harming to the testimony of the church. I have a relationship with each of these men, and each of these men are also Christians. And the more that I thought about their judgmental words, the more concerned I became. So I 
approached all three of them independently in order to challenge and appeal them to consider their words and the potential damage that I perceived they were causing in hearts of Christians and the damage that I perceived that they were causing to the gospel witness. Two of these encounters were peaceable, and they ended up bearing good fruit. But the third, quite honestly, has been a train wreck. By the way, the two that went well were not necessarily because they agreed with everything that I came to them with, but they were willing to hear it, and they were willing to see it. Another reason these two encounters honored the Lord was because my approach was generally loving, and it was born out of the context of a relationship that I had with these guys. The third one, the train wreck, um, probably hasn't gone so well because of my partiality towards him and my um, unforgiveness and maybe even my lack of trust. All of it is on me. It's not on him. It's my issue. Unforgiveness is my issue. Partiality is my issue. The lack of trust is my issue. Last week, Clark preached from in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. He was supposed to preach through uh, verses 11 and 12. So when I laid out this schedule a couple of months ago, I had Clark preaching last week um, on June 14th, um, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. But he asked if he could just stop at 10. So we, we talked about it, I looked at it, and I said, you know what, no big deal. I'll just start with 11 and 12 this week. Um, and then I'll just go, I'll go, I'll, it'll be, I'll start at verse 11, I'll go all the way th through verse 17. And what I was thinking is I would just cover verses 11 and 12 at a very high level. I would just kind of skim over them and just, uh, just uh, talk about what it means, but not deep dive into it, and spend the rest of the time in verses 13 through 17, which I've been super excited to preach, um, and, I've been, and I'm prepared to preach. But you will get those verses next week. So um, yesterday, um, I decided to preach uh, verses 11 through 12 alone. And the reason being is that the Lord wouldn't let me go past that. How could I skim over these convicting verses on judgment when the Lord was convicting me that I have wrongly judged other brothers? So... I said, okay, Lord, do your thing. I'm trusting you. And if for no other reason than for you, Lord, to show me my sin of judgment, I will step into the passage, I'll try to be humble, and I want to be expectant. Here's the understatement of the year. I'm stubborn at times. Well, I'm stubborn a lot. But by God's grace, I really want to see my sin. And I really want to live at peace with everyone. I want to live out Romans 12. As far as it, uh, as far as it depends upon me, I want to live at peace with everyone. So today, before we dive into God's Word, I want to highlight these three case studies. And obviously the names are protected, to, to, uh, names are kept silent to protect the innocent or the guilty, in my case. 
And what I'm hoping that by sharing my journey over the past month, that the Lord will use it in your life to encourage you to examine your heart towards people that you have a relationship with, particularly those whom you disagree with or whom you see sinning. I pray that he would further convict me um, even as I proclaim his word. Case study number one. I approached a man that I respect, and honestly, I even fear a little. I knew his background, and I trusted his character. So when we met, I was thinking the best about him. I assumed he might have a blind spot, and therefore was, I was able to affirm my love for him and ask him to just simply consider my concerns. And as he responded to my concerns, I listened to him. And as I listened to him, I increased in empathy for him. And we both actually cried at different times. Imagine that. In the end, he heard me. He even agreed with me on some points and said he would continue to consider the other points that I made. In case number two, I also had respect for this young man. And I knew he was committed to loving me, and I was confident that he knew that I loved and respected him. We had a, we had a history of seeking to understand one another. We've had conflict before, but at the end, of the end of the day, we trusted each other, and we knew one another's character. I approached him because I was truly concerned about his ministry and the way his actions might not edify the church and may, in fact, harm his witness. Make no mistake that these first two men were not yes men. They're actually kind of scary guys. They aren't pushovers. But we had a relationship where we were able to uh, push back against each other and to be heard um, and to continue to respect and think the best of one another. Case number three, I didn't, as I, as I reflect upon it, I didn't trust the motives of this man. As I have perceived him as judge, judgmental and lacking empathy and being one who brings an open and shut case rather than a dialogue. But I just, I want to really be clear on this. And even though that's what I thought and that's what I perceived, and, and it might even be true, it's not his problem, it's my problem. When I approached this man, I had a big log in my eye. It was animosity. It was lack of trust. It was lack of forgiveness towards him. You see, before I approached him, I didn't examine my own heart. Pointing out someone else's sin while having a honking log of unforgiveness in your own eye and growing bitterness in your own eye is a recipe for disaster. So as I post-process my judgment of him, whether my charges are right or wrong isn't the, isn't the, uh, the issue. I've been convicted that I did not approach this man out of love. I did not approach him thinking the best of him or seeking to understand him. But I approached him out of frustration. Today's passage has something to say about this. Today, James will teach us about slander and judging others. 
And who knows, maybe you're just here for the ride. Even what I just described, you're, you're going, wow, I've never, I can't relate with that at all. Maybe you just want to see what conviction looks like. But I, I pray it's more for you. I pray that the Spirit of God would both encourage and, inc- and convict you today. I pray that the Lord would convict each of us of wrong judgment in our heart towards others, while at the same time giving us a resolve to help one another get unstuck from sin that so easily entangles us. We're called to judge others, but to judge others rightly for their benefit and for their restoration. And you might be judging others wrongly, if you have a critical spirit and you're intolerant to the mistakes of others. You might be wrongly judging others if you are quick to correct. You might be wrongly judging others if you see others' sin clearer than you see your own sin. You might be judging others wrongly if you see remaining and persistent sin in other people and you never approach them. I've got eight points. It's not an eight-point sermon, but there's just there's eight uh, things I want you to remember, and um, I'll say it again at the end of the, this, and hey, on video, you can just stop it and rewind it. Judging is examining. Before we judge anyone, we examine ourselves to see if there's any sin in us. Judging is repenting. That after we examine ourselves and God uh, shows us a log in our eye, we repent. Judging is loving. We judge people out of love. Loving is judging. If you love a brother or sister and you see sin in their life and you don't approach them, you don't love them. Judging is peacemaking. Judging seeks to understand the open other person. It's open to reason. Judging, judging is restoring. It seeks to re- restore the sinner to a right relationship with the Father. And judging finally is a process. It's not a one-time event. So James says in chapter 4, verse 11, the first part of it, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Literally, don't slander um, brothers and sisters. Don't slander other Christians. Slander and gossip are connected because they both involve um, a group of people, more than one person, unless you're talking to yourself, two people talking about a third person that's not present. To gossip is to take a true story where it should not go. To slander is to create and spread false stories. Gossip and slander could be happening at the same time when we talk about what we saw another person do or how they behaved wrongly or sinfully, and then we make a judgment on their heart or motives, which is a type of slander. So gossip might be talking about what you saw somebody do wrongly, But what slander would do is you would assign some type of an evil motive or malign their character because of what you saw. Slander is unloving and prideful. It's giving in to the divisive schemes of the devil rather than resisting him. In last week's 
section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, James gave us a general warning. Actually, it was in chapter 3. James gave us a general warning of the attitudes and desires um, in the church that can lead to conflict and quarrels. And he called it, he said, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition causes disorder and every vile practice. It's pride. It's looking out primarily for me, myself, and I that causes this disorder. And what we need is not a checklist, is we need an increasing measure of God's grace that is experienced as we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord while resisting the devil. In James 4, 6 through 10, he says, but he gives, or excuse me, 6 through 7, he says, but he gives, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This submission to God and fleeing from the devil um, is ongoing. I love the picture that Clark gave us last week. It's, it's standing underneath God. It's standing underneath his rule. It's where it's safe. It's where the enemy can't um, touch us. So this submission to God and fleeing from the devil, is it's ongoing. It's not a one-time event, and it involves drawing near to God so that he can convict us and where we can be reminded of, of our assurance as his sons and daughters. And it's in drawing near to him where we repent. He says in verses 8 through 10, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What he's talking about there is repentance after we've been convicted of our sin. And what the enemy would like is that when there's conviction of sin, he would want us to, he'd want us to flee to him. He'd want to tell us that, there, that there's condemnation. But when we have the gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit, it reminds us that we are sons and daughters, and it leads us to repentance. In, in, in the second part of chapter, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 11, James quickly moves on from the sin of slander to the sin of judging another Christian. And he says, the one who speaks evil against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James is telling us, in essence, that if we judge other Christians improperly, we are speaking evil against God's law and, in fact, making a judgment of his law. And the law that James refers to here, and he's been referring to it over and over again, is Jesus' summary of all the commandments. It's what James has already referred to as the royal law or the king's law in chapter 2, verse 8, which is simply and profoundly that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in verse 11, to judge a brother or sister here, what that means is, is to, to falsely accuse somebody who is innocent or to, uh, or to use improper accusation to somebody that is guilty. It's accusing um, someone of something they have not actually done wrong or it's approaching them in an improper manner for something they did actually do wrong. 
It's misplaced criticism. It's criticism that's not motivated by love. It's motivated by frustration and wanting to get something off your chest. It's, it's criticism because somebody bugs you. And I want to just, just pause here because um, God's Word has a lot to say with rightly and wrongly judging brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're going to take a look at some other um, sections of Scripture. And these other sections are going to describe who judgment is for. And what exactly is judgment? When is judgment permissible? And how should we wield this, this loving but deadly tool? I'm going to take us first to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. And I want you to listen to who judgment is for and who's not to be judged. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There's, there's two takeaways that we can take from uh, Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First is, is don't judge unbelievers. They, what unbelievers need is a heart transformation. It only comes through the proclamation of the gospel. What they don't need is a list of moral imperatives where they just get their act together and then they spend eternity in hell. So we don't judge unbelievers. The second thing we can learn here is that we do judge fellow believers. Those who have been saved from their sin and who still persist in it. And at some level, that's all of us. That's what's been going on with me lately. And that I need judgment, actually. I need loving judgment. Paul is not saying that we are to be the sin detectives for one another. But he is saying that if there are patterns of sin in the lives of others that we know and we're in relationship with, in whom we love, we're to go tell them. And when he says, purge the evil person from among you, he's actually jumping to the last step, the last resort. That's not the starting place. Judging is a long-term, long-loving, long-enduring process and not an event. And then in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives his followers a warning regarding judging others. He says in verse 1, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He isn't telling us to ignore the sin of others. 
He's teaching us how to properly judge others when there is persistent sin in a, in a believer's life. So if this verse cannot be understood as a command to ignore the persistent and remaining sin of others in the church, what does he mean by telling his followers, judge not? He means don't be a harsh critic. Don't be a fault finder who, seeks, who enjoys seeking out and discovering the failings of others. Don't be one who assumes the worst of others, always questioning their motives. Don't be one who is more oriented towards giving judgment rather than extending mercy. John Stott had this to say, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. I love that. Then Jesus gives this famous parable as he continues in Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You see, we're not fit to be judges because we're, because we're not God and we're fallible human beings with blind spots. We're actually disqualified from the ultimate judge's bench because we're not inclined to be impartial and we are inclined to see other people's sin as greater than our own. Oftentimes, when we look in the mirror of God's Word, instead of seeing our own sin and allowing the Word to convict us, we see somebody else's sin. How often have you been reading God's Word and as you're reading it, um, you're finding day after day there's no conviction, but you're going, well, this guy's going to need to hear this. This girl's going to need to hear this. Well, this person needs to hear this. And I'll tell you, that's dangerous if you're never going, God, I need to hear this. Please um, search me and know me. This has been happening since um, the fall of man in the garden. And I suggest that this uh, symptom of seeing other people's sin is greater than your own um, is it's the root that needs to be pulled in every relationship in order to have a healthy, thriving, God-honoring relationship. I don't care if that's marriage or uh, I don't care if that's um, parent and child or uh, brothers and sisters in the church. Listen to this. After Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit in the garden, and they'd cover themselves up, and they hid from God who was walking towards them. And the Lord approached them and said, Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam, of course, said, oh, sure, yeah, I did it. It was me. No, he didn't say that. He responded, he says, the woman that you gave, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Not only did he, did he blame Eve, he blamed God. And then God turned the questioning to Eve, and he said, he said to Eve, what is this that you've done? Her response, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You see, we're all horrible judges of other people's sin, because we don't see our own sin as first and as worst. We have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and, and, and minimize the gravity of our own sin. 
And then he finishes up this parable in Matthew 7, in verse 5. Uh, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, when we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness and not the pain of repentance, Jesus says we're hypocrites. And I've been a hypocrite lately. So this, but the solution isn't to turn a blind eye to the persistent and remaining sin in those you know and love. It's to examine yourself first and to be aware of your own sinful tendencies before you approach your brother or sister. And what I've found um, recently, but I would say um, it's actually a history, that the biggest log that I have in my own eye, when I see the speck in my brother's eye, it's usually bitterness. It's usually unforgiveness. It's a, it's a lack of love um, because of something that I perceive they've done against me. And when the Lord shows and convicts me of the log in my eye, I need to remove it before I approach my brother or sister and show them the speck. And removing the log is not simply seeing the log, but removing it, um, it but it's removing whatever it is that may be clouding my love for this brother or sister in sin. It's most likely forgiving them before you approach them. It's confessing your impartiality towards them before you lovingly confront them. And when God, when God um, convicts you, and He will if you ask Him, repent and go to your brother to show him his sin. One of our early church fathers, his name is John Christum, I think is the way you say that. I have to butcher it. He says this. He says, correct someone who has sinned, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but correct someone as a physician providing medicines. Yes, and even more as a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore. We need to be as critical of ourselves as we often are of others and as generous to others as we always are to ourselves, end quote. This brings us to Galatians chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, where Paul tells us the goal of rightly judging one another and what our approach should be towards someone ensnared in sin. And by the way, this is the starting place. If purging the evil person from our midst is the ending spot, this is where you start. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught, this doesn't mean that you're, you're peeking around the corner trying to catch people in their sin. It means that, that through relationship, you see that someone is ensnared in the net of sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be there. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The anyone here is someone you know and have a relationship with at some level. And as I said, the assumption should be that the brother or sister is caught or stuck and not necessarily willfully engaging in sinful activities. Furthermore, don't assume that they're enjoying their sin. Assume that they have a blind spot and they need help. 
Don't come to him with guns blazing. The goal of rightly judging a fellow believer is to restore them to a right relationship with the Father by showing them their sin and help them get out of the snare. The approach is gentle and loving. It's come alongside them, not talking down to them. It's helping them get unstuck while at the same time keeping a watch on yourself, Paul says, lest you too be tempted. It's bearing one another's burdens so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You see, it's approaching the brother or sister who's caught in sin in a humble manner, acknowledging that you too are a sinner and you have blind spots. It's not standing up here and talking down to them like, how in the world did you ever get in that place? It's realizing that if it were not by, for God's grace, that you'd be in the same place. It's similar to removing a log from your own eye. Let's get back to James, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. When we refuse to submit to the law of love, the king's law, and we unlovingly judge others for their sin while ignoring our own sin, we're not doers of that very law. But instead, we put ourselves in the seat of a judge. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. The Father is the only one who is able to save and destroy. He is both the lawgiver and the judge. And this lawgiver and judge is full of mercy and love. He saved you and I from the penalty and guilt of our sin and saved us into a relationship with Him where we are fully and forever loved. You see, you and I, God's children, by faith, will only drink from the cup of blessing and will never drink from the cup of his wrath. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was destroyed so that you and I would never be crushed and destroyed by God. We, by faith, have been judged innocent. Therefore, he will not judge us or destroy us for any past, present, or future sin. Just the opposite. He has only the cup of blessing, brothers and sisters, for us to drink from. And he finishes it with this this question in 12b. But who are you to judge your neighbor. Let me tell you who you are to judge your neighbor. You are one who has received mercy and not judgment. You're one who is fully and forever loved. And since uh, you have received mercy, you should give mercy and not judgment because as he said in chapter 2 verse 13, that mercy always triumphs over judgment. So, here we are, full circle. Judging is first examining yourself. 
It's removing the log from your eye before you take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. And that removing the log is, do I, is, is asking God, do I need to forgive them? Is there something I need to confess? Are there blind spots? So number one, judging is examining. Two, judging is repenting. When God shows us the log, ask for his help to remove it and turn from it. Judging is loving. It's going to them um, for their benefit out of love. This might sound a little bit backwards to you, but loving is judging. That if you're not close enough with others to see their sin, to help them with their blind spots, to go to them when they're stuck in sin, you're not truly loving them. Judging is peacemaking, not peacekeeping. Here's what I mean by that. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. That, that ultimate peace comes from, from reconciliation. It's from acknowledging sin and confessing sin. You see, a true peacekeeper um, will never judge because they just want to keep the peace. And somebody that is a true peacekeeper is actually a false peacemaker. Judging seeks to understand. It doesn't seek to be understood. It's open to reason. Judging is restoring. The end of bringing uh, an accusation to somebody, approaching somebody, admonishing them, reproofing them, judging them, it's all the same words, is that they would be restored to a right relationship with the Father and they would enjoy all the benefits of that. And finally, judging is a process. It's not an event. It's not um, a one time you see somebody make a mistake and you're all over them. It's a process where through relationship you've seen patterns of sin in brothers and sisters in Christ. You remove that log out of your own eye and you lovingly approach them. It's a process, not an event. For me, just when I've been starting to feel pretty self-righteous about not being self-righteous, my inner judge, jury, executioner woke up during this COVID pandemic and these racial confrontations. God has shown me that on a scale of 1 to 10, my irritability factor went from a docile 3 to a snarky 8. The tension of the last three months of the pandemic and now racial conflict have become vehicles to show me um, how much I need God's grace and at times how little I trust in His sovereignty. Once again, I've slipped or maybe jumped into being a self-appointed judge with a scorecard in hand. Judging rightly, judging rightly the sin of others whom I know and love is one thing. But not taking the log of unforgiveness and bitterness out of my own eye first is quite another. God, I pray that you have mercy on me. I thank God that though my sins are many, as the song goes, his mercy is more. And I praise God that Jesus exhausted God's judgment against all my sins upon the cross. The 4% of my sins that I'm aware of, and the 96% as well. 
I'm thankful that he will indeed complete the work that he began in me and in you. I'm thankful that all will answer to their creator and savior ultimately and not have to answer to you and I. Humility needs to be the order of this in every day. And so I pray that God will help each of us by his grace to love others as he loves us and not judge others with the judgment entrusted to him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. God, I thank you that, um, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that you emptied yourself and you became man and you humbled yourself. You humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I thank you that it was, Father, your pleasure to crush Jesus on that cross so that all who believe would never be crushed and destroyed. I thank you that, Jesus, you were judged guilty so that we might become innocent. I thank you that for our sake, you became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And God, there's so much mudslinging out there right now. And God, you've showed me the ugliness of my heart. And I pray, God, that we would humbly allow your word to be a, mir a mirror to our heart. That we wouldn't let it uh, deflect off our heart and see the sin of other people as greater than our own sin. So, God, I pray that you would purify your church for your glory, for our sake, and for the good of our witness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.